we are live from the Empire of Lies and just outside the Matrix. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm, investig- I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. And we are joined by guest co-host Jason Goodman today. Hey, Jason, how you doing? I'm well, Lee. How are you? Fine. You're, you're in New York, right? Yeah. A lot going on. Because we have a lot going on. Yes. It's a, yeah. it's a heavy New York show because the news is heavily New York. And we'll yeah. talk about all that in a minute. Our first guest coming up in 50 minutes is Mark Sloboda, the great news analyst from Moscow. And he's in Moscow. So he'll be joining us. We'll be talking about what's going on with the Ukraine war. And then Ted Rawl will be joining us in the second hour. We'll be talking about all the news. We've got Lieutenant Governor arrested. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. And uh, we also have a, I don't know what to call it. What's the in, an incident? I, apparently it's a normal incident in New York. Because they're saying it's not a terror incident. The police are saying this attack that happened on a Brooklyn train station this morning at rush hour. And it was a weird hybrid attack. A, a lot of people who end up in the hospital were not there with gunshot wounds. They were there with smoke inhalation. Yeah. How do you how do you characterize the attack? Well, I, I mean, you just said something very important. The police are saying it's not a terror attack. So, I mean, what are you talking about? It's not terrifying to be trapped in a subway car where smoke starts filling it up and someone is shooting. Uh, I mean, it's weird the when mass. they decide something is. Yeah, I mean, when they decide something is or isn't terrorism, it's just. I mean, what does that even mean? This seems quite terrifying, but they're now saying that. A bag was left behind, and I mean, it seems to be filled with like fireworks, smoke bombs, and colorful, you know, not really like serious military weapons, but obviously he's injured people, he's scared people, he had a gun. Uh, You know, how does this help New York in terms of making people want to come back and go to work and ride the already crumbling public transit when it's becoming more and more obvious? that there is simply zero law enforcement on the streets of New York. And if anybody from the NYPD is listening, I back the blue in concept. We want police and law enforcement, but they must do their job. And if it's Alvin Bragg, the district attorney that's preventing the police from doing their job because he's not prosecuting criminals for doing things like this, then we got to get rid of him. And also, they're, they're, they're asking... They're wondering if the cameras are working at the station. They're not. Yeah, Jeffrey Epstein probably, they could put him there, and then that would be the reason the cameras aren't working. But, Lee, how do we have the greatest country in the world, and I'm in the greatest city in the world, and the cameras don't work? Really? Because cameras aren't that hard to figure out anymore. No. There are a lot of options for cameras. Right. So that's all today. And taking your calls at 202-521-1320 on The Backstory. 
there's just a slightly, more than slightly sad piece of news, not totally New York, although I have run into this individual many times walking around New York, and he was always extremely friendly. I was very sad to learn just right before I came on here that Gilbert Gottfried has died. Yes, I saw that comedian Gilbert Gottfried is dead. He was 67 years old. And you would see him around New York? Many times. He was he was always wearing a backpack, and I'd see him, and he'd smile and wave. He's a nice guy. There we go. And uh, famed former Saturday Night Live yep. cast member and voiceover. Again, one of the most recognizable voices in the in the world, I would say. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried dead at age 67. Terrible. Now, let me... Let me take away from the headlines for a second, and let me ask you a question. Aside from the headlines, and we'll be talking about them today, I was actually thinking about this. What are people's concerns? What do you think Americans are concerned about in their day-to-day life? What do you think the biggest concerns? And by the way, if you want to call in 202-521-1320, and tell us what you or people you know or b- both uh, are concerned about. Because I, I have a feeling the news in the headlines every day is not what is on most people's minds. Does that make sense? Well, not at the forefront necessarily. I think most people are generally concerned with their family and uh, keeping them healthy and safe and fed and with a place to live. And anything that affects that becomes a very uh, kind of important concern. Well, another headline is that numbers came out and were at a 40-year high for recession, recession numbers. Mm -hmm. And so my guess is the day-to-day concerns of people involve those numbers. They involve... Paying bills and so on, right. uh, just a guess. But mm-hmm. I, you don't hear about that. You're right. They put a lot of stuff in your head that is not that makes it something you're concerned about. But I don't think the actual concerns of people are being addressed by the media at all. They they ignore them because the. Yeah. And, the recession numbers, obviously, that's not going to look good for Joe Biden. No. So you can't bring those up. <laughs> well, they have an agenda, right? They want to steer everybody towards talking points to get everybody on the, the same page. I mean, it's interesting how even, you know, most people, I think, consider Fox News to be, you know, pro-Trump and, and all that kind of stuff. But they have a magical way of being like, yeah, we're, we're pro everything that you like, except we got to destroy Russia. And it's like, wait a minute, how did you get to that? Well, there's a lot of issues that, that they frankly don't speak for people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, not just Russia, but uh, issues of war in general. And they take a position that is more pro-Israel than I think many people in the base are. They're not anti-Israel, but Fox is over-the-top pro-Israel. And I don't think a lot of people... Did you see they had a debate between Nick Fuentes 
and they and Robert Barnes, the attorney, Robert Barnes. Oh, I did not see that. I would like to see that. And it was on Alex Jones's network. It was on Infowars. So hmm. they conducted the debate pretty fairly. But I thought it was interesting that it was the first issue debate they chose to have on Infowars. Huh. And Barnes Barnes made the point. He was taking the pro-Israel side. He was deceptive, I felt, like in his presentation. I felt he wasn't saying what he really thinks, but trying to appeal to the audience. He was. Right. He started off by saying, let's ask the question, not about whether I'm pro-Israel or not, but whether Donald Trump's policies on Israel were good. So see what he did there? He changed the, the nature of the debate to something about right. Trump policies, which right. people are going to be defensive of. Right. And then he made the point that Islamofascism, his term, that Israel's yeah. the best stop against that, that oh. the real problem is Islamofascism, and that Israel mm. is the only way we have stopping it. And I don't agree at all. For instance, Israel is allies with Saudi Arabia, yeah. and maybe not explicitly on paper, but in fact, indeed, they are the uh, allies of Saudi Arabia. And, yeah. you know, we've talked many times, Saudi Arabia's the country behind the uptick in terrorism. So I felt it was a disingenuous argument, but it was a pretty good debate. They had to put it right. on Rumble. Why? Well, you know, the I platform. Thought, what, but why not on band.video for Alex Jones? I thought that's his thing. Well, you know, it certainly may be available there, but I thought it was interesting. It was the first major thing I'd seen that was on Rumble. See, that's interesting that that sorry to interrupt you, Lee, but let's talk about that for a second, because Barnes and Rumble is interesting to me. Rumble is Canadian and Barnes appears with David Freiheit regularly. And David was one of the first to be live streaming on Rumble. And he has spoken in a way that caused me to believe he has a pretty close relationship with Rumble. Alan Dershowitz has recently been featured daily on Rumble. And Dershowitz has appeared with Barnes and Fry, and Barnes and Fry have refused to cover the lawsuits that I'm involved in with the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences and various other interesting suits, which is strange because I've seen them cover some pretty stupid social media beefs as far as lawsuits. And here's a major thing, First Amendment, huge corporation. I've alleged they've violated nonprofit laws and things like that, and these guys aren't touching it. And it's also notable that Rumble somehow merged or was bought by or is in some kind of a business relationship with Cantor Fitzgerald, which you may recall Howard Lutnick is the principal of Cantor Fitzgerald and the only person, I think, from that company to survive on 9-11 because he wasn't in the building. But what a lot of people don't know is that Howard Lutnick was Jeffrey Epstein's neighbor up on 71st or 72nd, wherever that big townhouse is. And it's just interesting to see how these birds of a feather all seem to be flocking together. I don't trust any of the guys that we're talking about, by the way. 
Including the platform Rumble? Well, no, not when they uh, when this announcement with Cantor Fitzgerald showed up. I mean, look, I'm using Rumble, but uh, a lot of people seem to have the misconception that it's a free speech platform. I don't know that they've expressly said that. I think it's just a YouTube competitor and what they're attempting to do, just as YouTube did, is grow their base until they're giant. And then there's no reason to believe that they won't do exactly what YouTube did. Suddenly start censoring people and banning people and, you know, telling you to do what they say or you're getting kicked off. Interesting. Now, joining us after the break is Mark Sobota straight out of Moscow. You're listening to co-host Jason Goodman and me here on uh, Tuesday edition. And we'll be back after this break on The Backstory. back with guest co-host Jason Goodman. Now joining us straight out of Moscow, Mark Slavoda, news analyst. My Mark, how you doing? Lee, Jason, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory. Good to have you back. Thanks, Mark. Now, how are you doing? How's uh, How are things in Russia? I'm alive. <laughs> how are you? Also alive, which is good for everybody. Yeah, you'd be very boring <laughs> guests otherwise. <laughs> it's a low bar. It's a low bar, I know. <laughs> yes, but you achieve it well. So let me... Vladimir Putin came out. He met with Lukashenko, and he made statements about the war and, and so on, and and about sanctions. And it was the first time we'd seen him in about a week. But he came out, and he is saying... The war is going as planned. Now, from what you can tell, is the war going as planned? Okay, so here's the thing. When you're going about a war, you have about six different plans, right? (laughs) Um, You have a plan A, you have a plan B, you have a plan C, so on, down the line. And uh, one of the accepted military maxims is that you should do all the planning and preparation that's possible as long as you're aware that that planning uh, will be immediately defunct as soon as you make first contact with the enemy. Right? That, that's, that's an accepted military maxim. And um, I don't think that the Russian military intervention in Ukraine is going according to uh, plan A. I, I, I think that plan A was was hoping for a rapid uh, collapse of the Kiev regime um, and uh, for uh, a host of different reasons, uh, one of which was uh, seems to have been a, a bad plan. That didn't happen. But uh, somewhere along the line, plan B or plan C is still going fine. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Mike Tyson has a very eloquent way of phrasing that. He says, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. Well, I I would say that Russia has done more punching than getting punched, except for the info war where where Russia has just been knocked to the mat repeatedly. Um, I mean, Russia controls an area of 
uh, Ukraine right now, the size of Great Britain, including Ireland, the, the, the British Isles, right, including Ireland. So I, I don't think that's uh, necessarily. Um, but, you know, we live in a Twitter information age yeah. where uh, there was a hyped up expectation that Russia going in with an intervention force of 190,000 would conquer uh, a country with uh, some 250,000 regular military, and that has conscripted the entire nation between the ages of 16 and 60. All right, it, it just wasn't going to happen uh, overnight. Um, and um, I- the fight now seems to be focused in Mariupol, and there are accusations as of last night. Not surprising. Ukraine is accusing Russia of using chemical weapons. Now, explain what this city in the city, the mining area, where all the troops, the Ukrainian troops, seem to have been corralled. Explain. Can you explain what that is so people can get a picture of that? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the the city is a city in the south uh, east of Ukraine. Uh, the the south of Donbass, even. Um, the city's name is Mariupol. Uh, it's a, a city with a history. It's got a large number of, of Ukrainian uh, Greeks. Um, it, it, there was a large Greek pop, population uh, in Mariupol. Uh, and originally, back in 2014, Mariupol went with uh, the rest of, of the Donetsk National Republic in rebelling um, against the uh, the overthrow of the government and the new regime uh, seizing power with open uh, Western backing back in 2014. Uh, But Mariupol was one of the areas that was taken back, and it was taken back by the Azov, the literal state-armed, state-funded, neo-Nazi, unequivocal neo-Nazi death squad. Um, And they were successful in taking Mariupol back. And then uh, they needed to keep Mariupol down, right? To keep the, the jackboot on the neck, if you will. And that's what Azov, Azov's national headquarters was then uh, centered in Mariupol. And uh, Mariupol is a port city, um, and it is basically the last area on this southeast coast of Ukraine um, that is not uh, that is still in the Kiev regime's hands. Although the amount of the city that they control at this point is is uh, really just a few blocks, um, and it, this is uh, Azov. I mean, this is uh, the neo-Nazi patriotic defenders of the new Ukraine that are holding out. And at this point, they've basically been holding out. They're 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 holding out. They've been driven into the Oftosval uh, steel factory. This is a Soviet era giant steel complex, right? And uh, I've heard the buildings described there as basically like concrete bunkers, right? It was it was built at that time and 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 to to that kind of uh, specifications. Um, so, um, they're, they, they've been holding out there, uh, uh, for some time, you know, I think much longer than anyone thought they would, the neo-Nazis are, they're fighting to the death. And I've seen a number of Western reports on, uh, this in the past week. 
that neglect to mention at all that Azov, as has been reported endlessly over the last eight years by the Western media, is a neo-Nazi battalion. Like, like an un, yeah, unquestioned, unequivocal, right? Their their leader, Belitsky, he founded them on the national idea that um, the national idea of Ukraine should be to lead the crusade for the white race. I mean, that's, you can't get much more neo-Nazi than that. Um, so um, they have been surrounded, of course. They, their numbers have been vastly diminished. They are uh, running low on ammunition, uh, fuel, food. You, you could imagine all of this. Um, but um, they have now decided to play the Oh, uh, Russia, uh, the evil uh, dictator Vladimir Putin is uh, using uh, weapons of mass destruction on us innocent little Nazis card, right? Because that, that's the card they're playing. Um, and it has to be said that actually even the government in Kiev is not backing up this claim. They're just saying that they have they have no evidence to to confirm or to deny it, which is exactly what the Pentagon is saying. Uh, so other than Azov right now, really the only one who's making a big deal out of this is the Western mainstream media, which is no surprise. And they're continuing now to whitewash and scrub. And, uh, you know, you'd be hard pressed in uh, uh, media articles to even find out who these people are who are suddenly claiming uh, that on the, you know, uh, what must be the the days left before crushing the last neo-Nazi resistance in Mariupol that Russia, of course, is is going to use chemical weapons, which is equivalent to saying for sure the United States is going to use weapons of mass destruction in their occupation, ongoing military occupation of Syria. Right. I mean, of course they are, because the United States. That's that's the strength of the argument. And this gets even more ridiculous because, you know, not only is not even the regime in Kiev backing up and the Pentagon is saying they have no evidence of this, but it gets worse because NBC ran a story earlier this week on U.S. intelligence. And um, this is uh, in a break with the past. U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia. Even when the intel is, isn't rock solid, or in this particular case, there is no evidence at all. And it goes on to say, uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm reading from the article here, it was an intention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents in Ukraine. This was several weeks ago that that came out. Uh, Joe Biden later said it publicly. But... Three U.S. officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence Russia has brought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. So this is just disinformation put out under the rubric of anonymous U.S. intelligence. Like, and they've long been doing, but now they even openly admitted it. And what does the media say about this? What does NBC? They then go on to say, observers of all stripes. Well, I don't know who these observers are or what stripes they have but have called it a bold and so far successful strategy to put out inf this information. Wow. Uh, and, um, you know, old face, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are some stripes. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's, 
there is there is no evidence, right? Unlike actually, unlike the United States, Russia and and the United States uh, in the post-Soviet era in the early years of it both agreed uh, in bilateral treaties that they would uh, destroy their chemical weapons arsenal. Russia did so, and they did so under U.S. observation um, and uh, you know international inspectors. Guess who did not do so and still has their chemical weapons arsenal? U.S. <laughs> the United States, but not Russia. And this, you know, attempt to to claim chemical weapons. It's amazing how every enemy that the U.S. has in their conflicts around the world suddenly starts. Uh, they suddenly have indications that they're using uh, chemical weapons. Um, uh, you know, usually when their opponents are winning. That's. <laughs> <laughs> or or defeating their proxies, as was the case in Syria and here. But there's no evidence of this. There's no evidence of Russia using chemical weapons on the battlefield, either, unlike the United States, it must be said, either as Russia or uh, uh, while it was still the Soviet Union. Um, they haven't used them anywhere else in this conflict, and there's no reason to use them on these last few neo-Nazis in Mariupol. They are isolated alone away from the civilians that they were using as human shields in a steel factory. Russia is artillerying it to the ground right now, and that's wow. all they need to do. But Mark, there's an important flip side to what you're talking about, which is that not only – is the U.S. intelligence community using completely fabricated false you know, disinformation? Uh, there's been no effort to address the very compelling evidence that's been presented by Russia and others that the U.S. was establishing biological laboratories. And also, I want to add, I know a lot of Listeners for the backstory will know this already, but the United States has regularly engaged in the use of illegal chemical weapons, dropping depleted uranium munitions all over Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, creating catastrophic Serbia. environmental disasters there. Serbia, right. In, in Europe, in Serbia as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. So about these biolabs, I mean, obviously you haven't heard. They've been thoroughly debunked. By who? By the U.S. government, because they said we didn't do it. Oh, okay. That's all for that. <laughs> so the media has been quite clear on it. U.S. government said we, right? You know, never mind that Newland, under oath, you know, Victoria Newland, the, the neocon maven, the wife of Robert Kagan, the arch neocon, the one, uh, you know, who was instrumental in, uh, uh, as she herself put it, midwifing <laughs> this putsch in Ukraine back in 2014, where she infamously said F the EU um, in, the, in the released audio that was caught uh, of her planning who the next prime minister of, of Ukraine would be, uh, her and Jeffrey Piat. But um, she uh, admitted under uh, oath in the Senate that the, that, uh, the Kiev regime has biolaboratories, that they're funded by the Pentagon, uh, not not by the, the the world, not by the Department of Health, not by anyone else, but by the, the U.S. military, by the Pentagon, and that she was extremely worried that Russia might get access to their research materials. That all of that is unquestioned. It's just a question of well, what actually was 
the Pentagon doing there? They have even admitted that they were doing research with bioweapons at those facilities. But they said, well, they were just old Soviet bioweapons that they held on to and were doing research on. That's, that's the story they give. Meanwhile, they have – the U.S. has continually prevented the inspection mechanism. Uh, they've they've continually, uh, as a, a, a veto-holding member of the UN Security Council, shot down any inspection mechanism for the the, uh, the treaty on banning of of biological weapons. Right? They they don't allow. They've had no transparency. Uh, you know, they're ringing these bases. China's very concerned because they're ringing China with bio labs. Two funded by the Pentagon for purely innocuous reasons, of course. And we know this because the media says it's been debunked because the U.S. says, well, there's nothing nefarious going on here at all. And, you know, this is, of course, flying in the face of the fact that the U.S. did use biological weapons in, in Korea, right? Uh, um, and, and so as a, a history of this. But um, Russia has released a lot of documents. Uh, uh, that they obtained uh, from these biolaboratories. They've turned them over to the UN. But the Western mainstream media simply refuses to even report on it. It's been debunked. It's Russian disinformation because the US government said there's nothing for Russia or anyone else to worry about there. So that's it. Wow. Case closed. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Mark, uh, on Mariupol, is it essentially all but over? But they haven't admitted it. It's been all but over for several weeks now. But the mopping up door to door, right, room to room in urban combat uh, can be pretty heavy. Uh, you know, can it still take a bloody toll and take a long time. Um, there is an open question um, because some more serious people have been talking about it, that there are some – NATO or uh, in, uh, or uh, Western intelligence officers that were embedded with the neo-Nazis still there. And there have been several abortive rescue attempts uh, to rescue what we must presume is the Azov leadership and or these uh, supposed Western um, uh, officers or agents. Uh, that are there with them. They've uh, tried twice to uh, fly helicopter, at least twice to fly helicopters in to get them out. Uh, they've been shot down. Then they tried uh, uh, bringing in a uh, ship, a barge on uh, through the Sea of Azov. That was lit up. Um, and the, the, it's the chatter that is coming from people who were previously um, intelligence in countries like France uh, and and elsewhere within the NATO camp that have been sounding the alarm on this. Um, so it's not confirmed, uh, but some serious people have begun to talk about that possibility that they're there um, and that they embedded themselves with neo-Nazis and are now about to pay the price for it. Wow. And, you know, John Mark Dugan is in Mariupol right now. He told me last night exactly what you're telling me. He says five helicopters were shot down. And then separately, there is a story on Envolve, which I'm not really sure what that is, but it's telling us about a French journalist, Georges Malbruno, who 
is saying that he's in Ukraine and he was confronted by Americans who he claims are in charge of the war. Yeah, they're talking specifically that that story is specifically talking about the foreign volunteers, right? Right. The, uh, the mercenaries that have come to to fight for, uh, well, I guess for Azov right sector and Zelensky. Um, and um, that they were met and they were expecting some type of international battalion. And they got there to find out that it's run by Americans and that it is, in their words, essentially run by the Pentagon. Right. Uh, so um, which I, I it must be pretty um, uh, I, I have to say uh, for those mercenaries, that must be pretty cynical. Because by all accounts from all the mercenaries that have escaped from Ukraine, the Western mercenaries, they're just being fed into the grinder as cannon fodder. So Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, on Twitter, the account, the account at Mal Bruno is saying Boris Johnson's visit to Kiev confirms London's place as Ukraine's first ally. Elite SAS special forces units have been present in Ukraine since the beginning of the war as have American Delta Force, confides a French intelligence source. And apparently this source also says the Russians don't ignore this. They know what the secret war is. Again, so none of this is confirmed, but when NATO former intelligence people come forward and say this, you you can't help, uh, help but take it, the possibility uh, seriously. Um, and it really should come as no surprise. I mean, the U.S. has long you know, used the idea that, oh, we don't have any boots on the ground in that conflict because, you know, right. our special forces and CIA and intelligence operatives and the ASAS, you know, they don't wear boots. They wear ballet slippers. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But I mean, these reports, they ring true, Mark, much more so as you're saying. It just doesn't make logical sense that chemical weapons would be used by Russia Whereas based on what we're seeing, the rhetoric, the behavior, sending weapons, Lloyd Austin doing, you know, Zoom calls, training, switchblade drone pilots, uh, it does ring true that the United States is much more involved in this than they would officially like us to believe. Yeah, it, it, that does seem a very realistic possibility. I mean, um, and I mean, they – the U.S. officials have admitted, I mean, even, you know, not considering that, that they are providing weapons to the Kiev regime every day, yeah. which, you know, Russia has got to take that as a as an act of war, even without the possibility of the presence of, um, of forces, uh, you know, of Delta Force or, or uh, um, intelligence agents literally on the ground, because, of course, they're being used to kill Russian soldiers. And when you see, you know, these photos up posted by Azov, by the right sector, by C-14, named after the 14 words of white Aryan uh, code, you know, these state armed and funded neo-Nazi battalions that serve the Kiev regime, them posting photos showing them holding advanced Western anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles. Um, you know, if they'll arm neo-Nazis because they're geopolitically useful, what won't they do? I mean, we've seen right. this before, right? Moderate jihadis in Syria and Libya nice. and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. We've seen, yeah. you know, arm, arm, training and arming, uh, funding right-wing 
uh, you know, far right uh, death squads in South and Central America and multiple countries. Um, you know, there's there's a long, long history of this. And, you know, we, we've had previous uh, actually in the beginning of the Cold War in the 1950s, um, you know, uh, declassified documents have revealed that the U.S. was um, uh, actually uh, organizing uh, in it a, a um, you know covert activity, uh, a, a attempted insurrection by these same uh, uh, West Ukrainian far right uh, grandfathers who were themselves Nazi collaborators and Holocaust perpetrators. You know, and the the comments coming from the CIA at the time, you know, any. Any bastard will do as long as he's anti-communist. Anti well, the same whole truth now, except as long as he's anti-whoever the enemy of the U.S. is right now. The truth is, as long as their, their hatred and violence right for the moment is directed primarily at ethnic Russians, Slovak East Ukrainians, and leftists, then these particular neo-Nazis uh, in Ukraine are geopolitically useful, and uh, they're kosher. <laughs> Funny term for Nazis. Yeah, yes, you know, it is. But <laughs> they, but you're right. These are kosher Nazis. They're they're uh, anointed by Zelensky, who you know just about two hours ago on his official, yeah. I think Instagram, he yeah. released a picture. They have apparently captured Victor Medvedchuk, and they've got a picture of him in handcuffs on Instagram. He's the leader of the largest opposition party in Ukraine. For people who don't know that, the opposition bloc. And where did they capture him? That has I, I, that has not been revealed yet that I know of. And what are they going to do with him? What have they been doing with uh, Russian traitors? I mean, they've been openly, sum summarily executing them on the streets of Kiev. I mean, one of the Kiev regime's first peace negotiators with Russia, Denis Kiriyev, he was summarily executed, shot twice in broad daylight, walking into a courthouse in Kiev because it was identified that he was a traitor, right? Now, this was reported in the Ukrainian press. Ukrainian uh, um, parliament members, their, their RADA members, openly talked about this. But this was not repeated in the Western media. Why? Because it doesn't fit the narrative that they're trying to sell. And it would needlessly complicate the story. And he's far from the only one. There have been multiple officials in Kiev that have been just shot in the streets for being identified as traitors, either by the uh, Ukrainian intelligence, um, the SBU, or the far-right forces. And it has to be said that there's very little distinction left between the two of them. The BBC ran a video clip this week um, uh, that included a uh, Ukrainian intelligence, the SBU officer. And right on the back of his jacket, like not something that he did personally, but in the script of you know what m might be like a CIA jacket or an FBI jacket, it had SBU and also printed right there was uh, uh, SS Galician Division. 
This was right on the BBC. Of course, they didn't comment on this. But for those of you who don't know, the SS Galician Division was the West Ukrainian Nazi collaborators who served openly in the SS and committed the Holocaust. And now you have Ukrainian intelligence officers who are summarily executing their own officials on the streets of Kiev for being traitors, openly flying that flag <laughs> of, wow. of an SS division. And the BBC is the one who filmed it and never commented on it. And maybe they never even noticed it. I don't know. They're not even shy about it. Yeah, what I want to point out that Medvedchuk is the one of people featured in the film Revealing Ukraine, executive produced by Oliver Stone, the film that I'm also in, uh, and therefore is a very high-profile person. That's the film that was censored, pulled off of YouTube in recent weeks. Mm. But mm. he's one of the people featured in that film. So if if they kill him, God forbid, it's going to be a fairly high-profile. But you wouldn't put it past him. Assassination. You wouldn't put it past him, Mark. It, ha it has to be said that Zelensky has now charged the leaders of both of the largest opposition parties, both Viktor Medvedchuk and Petro Poroshenko, who is also leads a, a pro-Maidan party, right, that, that Zelensky beat uh, in the election. He's charged both of them with being traitors, with treason, on the same nonsense political charges, actually, of a cold deal with, with, with uh, Donbass. Uh, because um, the people of Donbass were all officially declared to be terrorists, and they did business with terrorists. How is this different, Mark, than what's happening here in the United States? They don't want Marjorie Taylor Greene to run for Congress because they're saying she's an insurrectionist. They take people who the police let into the Capitol building and stick them in jail for a year without a trial. How is it any different? Um because they have literal neo-Nazis who are killing people for the regime and executing them on the streets of Kiev. But I mean, they're just <laughs> declaring their political enemies to be traitors and locking them in jail or, or doing whatever. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can honestly say I, I, I have not been paying much attention to U.S. domestic politics in the past month. But fantastic appearance, Mark Sloboda. Thanks so much. As always, a ton of detail on this evolving story. Mark Zavala, straight out of Moscow. Have a nice night, Mark. Thanks for having me, guys. When we come back, we'll be talking to Jason Goodman, and we'll pick up on the point that he just made here on The Backstory. back on the backstory joined by guest host co-host jason goodman and jason you made a point during the last segment about how the u.s is not shooting not assassinating in the streets but is arresting yeah. their political rivals and i think it's a very yeah. good point and i think some of the purpose of the january 6th prosecutions and holding people as political prisoners there. And I don't know how else to put it. I think it's yeah. 
safe to say that they are being held as political prisoners and that they're being held in very bad conditions on purpose mm -hmm. to send a political message is a way of saying to people, don't question the narrative. And they haven't gotten to the point of assassinating people yet. But we're headed towards that where... In, in, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Well, I was just going to say that they kind of are there. They're just doing it differently. When you look at Julian Assange, this has been yes. like a decade-long assassination. And the same thing is happening to these guys who are in jail in D.C. We've heard about one person who lost an eye, uh, people who are starving, you know, celiac disease. There was a guy who lost like 40 pounds. And I mean— uh, it's just unconscionable to think that in the United States of America, this could happen. And, you know, Lee, what you're suggesting, it's already worked. The fact that they did this, anybody at all who's thinking about protesting the government or uh, doing anything remotely edgy is going to think, eh, maybe I just won't do that. I could wind up in jail like the January 6th people. And they're trying to get Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, disqualified from being reelected. Yes. No, that's exactly right. And I think that the, and Enrique Tario from the Proud Boys has been in yeah. jail for four weeks now. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, I and and it's very pointed. And I would say what Canada did shutting down a trucker yeah. convoy was right. a similar message. North of the border. You see what yeah. I'm saying, Jason? Yeah, even if you donate money to a protest, we could come and take your bank account. No one's going to even do that. If you have kids, if you have some medical condition where any disruption in your bank, I mean, Lee, I, I know you know, and I know a lot of people listening. If somebody screws around with your bank account for a week, that can create a cascade of bounced checks. I mean, my bank. Every time a check bounces, I get charged like 30 bucks. And, um, you know, if you write five checks to pay the, the electric bill, the cable, the rent and all, and they start bouncing, you wind up with $150 worth of bank fees. This is a big deal for a lot of people. No, it's a very big deal. And, and they also showed that they'll do it and make sure you have no way to get money in the first right. place. And if people get donations, for instance, they'll pay for legal fees. They'll seize the donations. So I think yeah. we're living in very, 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 very dangerous times. And we just yeah. need to be realistic about it. What do you think, Jason? You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, all this stuff has already, like, like on YouTube, for instance, there's a lot of stuff that I just won't say because I know they'll, kick the videos off. It's strange. I was watching uh, Jimmy Dore the other day, and he's talking about the vaccine and all kinds of things that I, I don't, I like Jimmy Dore. I don't want anything to happen to his YouTube show, but it's interesting that he could talk about that stuff. And, you know, you and I talk about something that's not even falling into the category that YouTube says you're not allowed to talk about, and they strike the video and endanger our ability to continue broadcasting on YouTube. Yes, and the fact that there's no one on your side politically, 
There's no politician who's going to step up and say anything. If people will shut down, even Donald Trump has not been. Donald Trump doesn't like it when he gets thrown on Twitter. But he really didn't say anything on the run-up when other people were getting thrown left and right off Twitter. And now it's gotten crazy. Yeah. Uh, where Scott Ritter and others. And as you pointed out, they don't tell you what you did wrong, do they? Right. No, not at all. There's no due process. There's no appeal process. I've been thrown off of Twitter. Let's talk about Twitter for a second. Because when Twitter first showed up, I remember one of the early high-profile investors in Twitter was Al-Waleed bin Talal. And he is one of the guys that was stuck into the uh, the Riyadh, you know, when they when they put everybody in jail in that fancy hotel, MBS stuck him in there. And there was a story in Bloomberg, I think, yesterday that now somehow Jared Kushner got two billion dollars from the Saudis for his investment fund or whatever. But there definitely seems to be a. Um, you know, there's obviously an internal war in the Saudi royal family where there's an MBS side and there's an Al-Waleed side, and Trump is definitely on the MBS side. What do you think any of this has to do with Twitter, Lee? Because I was very disappointed when Trump was president that he didn't take any action against Twitter. And in my mind, it's suggestive that whatever it is or whoever it is that controls Twitter, perhaps Trump can't do anything about it. Well, also, what do you think of the latest developments with Elon Musk? And Twitter. He was going also to be on the board. very interesting. Now he's not going to be yeah. on the board. Well, let's talk about that because he, he made some very specific comments and you just reminded me of something. There's a photograph floating around of Barack Obama in college. And there's like three guys on a couch and then Barack Obama sitting on the floor in front of the couch. And one of the guys is alleged to be Al Walid bin Talal. Looks a hell of a lot like him to me. And uh, I've spoken to a bunch of people about this, even though Charles Wartell disagrees with me that this individual, Charles Fields, does not look like Al-Walid bin Talal. Charles does concede that it is known that there was a large donation made to Harvard by an anonymous Saudi sheik right around the time that Obama went there. And the thing that's very interesting about Twitter is, you know, I'm being sued by the Emmys and the CEO of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, which is actually, you know, they give out the Emmys. My name, Adam Sharp, was an executive at Twitter from 2010 until 2016. And he left in December of 2016, which is coincidentally right after Trump won. And um, I just wonder what exactly is going on at Twitter because Adam Sharp gave a speech in 2018 when he was going around telling people how Donald Trump could be defeated. And in this speech, Sharp says that in 2016, Donald Trump became the most effective Twitter user in the world. And what's very interesting, and this ties into the Elon Musk comment, is that so Trump had 88 million Twitter followers when they canceled his account. Do you know who the number one Twitter user is right now? No. Barack Obama with 130 million. And I find that weird that like Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber or Elon Musk, for that matter, isn't the number one. And, you know, the other day when Musk announced that he's no longer going to be on the board of Twitter, 
It was accompanied by a statement that he felt that I, I believe what he said was half, and that may have been hyperbole. But one of his issues was that there was such a huge number of fake accounts on Twitter. And I allege that there is no way that Barack Obama is the number one Twitter user. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, he's well known, of course, but if he was 50 million followers when Trump was president, what has Barack Obama done since then that has potentially put such a, a huge amount of attention on him that more people are interested in him than they are Elon Musk or Taylor Swift or any of the people who are in the top 10? Musk started pointing out, Justin Bieber has tweeted once in the past three months, Somebody else on that list tweeted three times in 2021 or something like that. And so Elon Musk was questioning the authenticity of Twitter, which I also question. I do not believe that Twitter is a social media platform, Lee. I believe it is a social engineering platform, and it's being used toward political ends. And that's guest host Jason Goodman. And we'll be talking more about social media after this short break on The Backstory. live from the empire of lies is time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines i'm investigative journalist lee stranahan and this is the backstory and we're joined by guest co-host jason goodman from crowdsource the truth doing an able hey, job of hosting a show and we want thank to thank you. mark for mark Slavoda for joining us last hour from Moscow. Mark really knows a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's always very good. The, I like the detail he goes into. Yeah. On explaining. And I also like the fact that, you know, you could hear if he's Russian propaganda, he's not good at it because, <laughs> no, I'm serious because you could tell he was being honest. He was saying, this hasn't gone as quickly as Russia wanted. Yeah. He doesn't, He wouldn't admit that were he Russian propaganda. Right. You know what I'm saying? He just sure. say everything's great. Yep. And so thanks to Mark Sloboda for a great appearance. Coming up this hour, Ted Rawl, another New York guest. Jason's in New York. Because we got a lot of New York news. Yeah, we should talk about what's happened here with the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Governor Brian Benjamin, because he was arrested on Tuesday in a federal corruption investigation having to do with uh, some kind of agreement to use his influence to get a $50,000 grant. That'll be the first thing okay. we talked to Ted about. I'm okay. sort of saving some of that. Got it. Okay, let's do that. A little bit, because we got Ted coming on. Yeah, yeah. Say the name of the show, Jason. The Backstory. 202-521-1320 is the number to call if you want to be part of the show. And I was asking a question earlier, which are what are people's real concerns? And 
I don't think it actually matters, but I, you know, I increasingly feel the need to point out the problems with Trump because I, I've said before, he's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. He's the most likely candidate, but I think Trump is problematic as a candidate. One thing I said on Twitter lately was his slogan could be Donald Trump. Maybe he'll get it better right this time. <laughs> yeah. What else are you going to do? Could be another, <laughs> could be another slogan. You know, one of my biggest concerns right now about Trump Lee is that every rally that he's had, he has Mike Lindell there and he's saying, thank you, Mike. And I know Mike Lindell is a liar who promoted nonsense and basically prevented any legitimate legal inquiry into the election integrity. Let me sum it up. Mike Lindell, what has he done? Anyone who's a Mike Lindell fan, as you lay there in your MyPillow, ask, answer this question. What positive benefit has he brought Donald Trump? Zero. What's, what's the win that Mike Lindell's been behind? The big victory. And and I don't think there is anything, right? Am I missing something? You're not. The one saving grace is that it is possible that Trump is keeping an enemy close because I've noticed that when, this is the third time that I've observed this, that he's done a rally where he, he mentions Mike Lindell and he praises him by saying he's great at buying advertising time. So it's a little bit of a backhanded comment, but I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, that's true, but that's not help. In other words, Mike Lindell has gotten his influence by the amount of advertising he buys and the fact that he allows people to make money if if those people are right-wing media personalities. Well, no, if they're promoting his agenda, if they're promoting his agenda. Right. That's that's the way it goes with these guys. Yeah. Uh, but and people start to learn. I'll put it like this. They start to learn. You better promote Michael Lindell's agenda if you want some money. Right. And so I, I think he's done nothing for Trump or for the base. He's just stirred up stuff and accomplished nothing. If I look at him by his accomplishments, there aren't any. And that concerns me. I want to give the calls 202-521-1320. Ingrid in D.C., what is on your mind? Well, I do want to talk about my concerns, but there's been some chatter about getting Colonel Douglas McGregor to run as a candidate for president. And I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if anybody is actually approaching him in real life, but I think that would be great. But um, my my concern um, is Ukraine, because I'm odd. And um, yesterday, Gonzalo Lira interviewed Scott Ritter just a little over half an over an hour and. The last 20 minutes were surprisingly optimistic. 
because uh, Scott, and now I really pay attention to him a lot more. He he has a view that um, the the U.S. NATO are not going to get involved, and they're just going to accept the loss. And he even went so far as to say he doubted that there was going to be any kind of much of a um, uh, an insurgency under a, a Russian occupation. And he answered someone's question to say he thought all these Ukrainian-American, uh, like Newland, are really uh, only good for PR. And as far as the real policy going forward, they are just going to be impotent and swept aside. So I, I would recommend watching that for some, some, some of an upbeat, hopeful prognostication. Well, I've talked about Gonzalo there a little bit. I like him, but I think I, I saw that segment he did on Victoria Newland. And, and Jason, do you follow Gonzalo Lira at all? Yes. Yeah, and I he had a piece on Victoria Newland. And if you didn't know anything about Victoria Newland, it would have been a very good piece. But I know something about Victoria Newland. I think his mistake is assuming that the it's a grudge. It's a, he treats it like Victoria Newland's policy comes from a personal grudge. And as opposed to the 70 years that the U.S., the CIA, I, I did a class, I'm starting a class I'm doing on the deep state in Ukraine. And I, so I remember this URL. If anyone wants to find this out, type in, go to a search engine, and I recommend Google only because I know what shows up when you use Google. Type in aerodynamic. A E R O D Y N A M I C. Type in aerodynamic space CIA. And what you'll find, the top of the search results, is a memo from 1953. There's a memo that the CIA outlined the goals of Project Aerodynamic. And in it, they show in 1953. So, you know, that's what? Next year it'll be 70 years exactly? Is it 70 or 80? Uh, 70. So that's what I thought. So 70 years it outlines the goal and it says aerodynamic is going to be working with these Ukrainian insurgent groups. Whoa. Are you looking at it, Jason? Did you look that up? Well, I'm not sure. I've got something here talking about space medicine and then intelligence for the space race. This is from 1959, August 21st, Soviet space research program. This is the one that outlines project dynamic. Aerodynamic. I'm finding it for some reason. Let me let me keep searching for it. It should be right at the top, but maybe they're suppressing. That's it. outlined. It's a a, a seventy year program 
by the CIA to work with I these Nazi elements. Right. You, you see, it's a anti-Soviet Ukrainian resistance groups, UHVR, UPA, ZPU, HVR, and OUN slash B. They're in Western Europe for intelligence purposes. OUNB is the Banderites. That's the Bandera wing of the Ukrainian insurgent army. So that's saying we're working with these. It's telling you who they're working with. Wow. And they're paying this guy 8,000 bucks in 1953. How much was a Cadillac in 1953? Well, uh, yeah, th there's a lot of interesting stuff in that document. But the first paragraph outlines the goal of it. So what I'm saying is when you and they spent more than 8,000 bucks on this total. That was just the salary for one guy. And a Cadillac in 1953 was $4,305. So, I mean, the most expensive Cadillac now is over 100000 and this guy's getting twice that amount. Right. So that is why 70 years of that, 70 years of an official government program of working with these Nazis in Ukraine. Now, why did they work with them? Well, it's obvious to fight the Soviets. Yeah. Their thought was that better to ally with these guys who at least aren't communists to take on the Russians. And that sums up why policy, this is not like Victoria Newland. The thing I I disagree with Gonzalo Lira a little bit. It's see, it's hard to say because I'm quibbling in a sense. He's done great work, and his stuff on Victoria Newland is great. But I disagree. That's merely a personal. He acts like Victoria Newland started this, and it's based on a personal grudge. And I'm showing you. Right. This goes back to 1953. Right. When I don't think Victoria Newland was born. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know, it's, it's, I, 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 I don't know Gonzalo Lira, and I'm not saying anything bad about him, but we do need to keep in mind this concept of a limited hangout. I'm not saying that he is, but I was a little bit troubled when he started interviewing um, Scott Ritter. I don't know if your viewers know, but Ritter was convicted of unlawful contact with a minor and five other charges in 2011, and he's a registered sex offender. Well, I don't think it, I, and I don't think that has anything to do with his, Ritter has been a frequent guest on this show, and his analysis on the war has been rock solid. I'm just worried anytime that happens. I don't mean to speak badly about the guy. I don't know him. I'm just saying anytime anybody gets jammed up in a felony, I become concerned about who might be exerting influence over them, particularly given what we've just heard about Whitmer. But but here here's what we know. He was the UN weapons inspector who went on the record and called out Iraq. And I'm suggesting the opposite of what you're saying that it may have been revenge that they wanted from the Iraq war to find something on Ritter. 
Was it made you up? You see what I'm saying? Has he claimed that it, that he was framed or anything? It, it's possible. Hmm. And that it would make more sense to me that they are trying to get Ritter. Huh? In the same way that they use rape allegations against Julian Assange. Right, right. And and I I don't think, from what I can tell, Gonzalo Lira is an honest actor. This is an Seems honest, like he's attempt, attempting to understand uh, a de- complex situation. And saying yeah. it's Victoria Newland is closer to the truth than a lot of people ever get. Right. I just don't think he's right. Because I think there's yeah. a, and, and and really what I'm saying is that I don't think he's right in a full way. And I, 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 I would be curious to what he'd say if he found out about this material. And I, Ingrid, want to go back to calls? Ingrid has a concern. Go ahead, Ingrid. Well, that was my concern, and I want to agree with you. I think his contact with a, a minor, this was something that was started um, like over telephones or something. I don't know if there was even any real contact. And he, what Ritter says is he didn't know that this person was underage. It it does seem like a setup. And he, huh. he did um, say pretty, you know, not as fully, but similar to what you're saying, Lee, I completely agree with you. And Ritter told uh, Gonzalo that Newland was more of a minor role in this whole in this whole thing. So I don't know. What do you think of that, Lee? What What do you think of what minor role? I mean, that just doesn't. How How could these guys miss that? I consider Newland to be a relatively minor role. She's Strobe Talbot, who. Victoria Newland used to work for is a major role. And Victoria Newland is a uh, is a, a person carrying out orders, right. basically. And she's a bad person, and she's significant, but she's not at the top of the food chain. That's why I look to people like Trump Talbot and Bill Clinton are the right. big big guys. Right, and there's going to be somebody behind them too, no? At a certain point, you can say, this is a very important person. So Dick Cheney is another person Victoria Newland worked for. Dick Cheney is a major player. And there might be someone behind him. I don't know. I think yes, but I mean, what I'm getting at is I think that I, I, I don't like describing her as a minor player. She's not necessarily... Uh, like let's, you know, she's not the team owner. She's not the general manager. She's not the coach, but she might be the quarterback. She might be the assistant coach. She's definitely carrying out orders for very important people. And I think she's more important than minor. Well, I would say to who compared relatively to who she's not the originator of this exercise. That I agree with. That's the CIA. And what you find in aerodynamic is the CIA not only for 70 years was working with these Nazis, but for 70 years have been obfuscating the truth about the Nazis and saying, no, they're not really Nazis. 
Yeah. And that history is significant. And Victoria Newland kind of walked into that. And, but, you know, again, th this is quibble because I, I think Victoria Newland's a minor player compared to Dick Cheney or Strobe Talbot, but yeah. she's a major player compared to, I don't know, some State Department official. Right. Yeah, it's all relative. Let's go to 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is on your mind? Thank you for taking my call, Lee. Uh, first, I'd like to say, Fried, you want to sign up? I had five quick comments. The first comment, you probably already know, but I'm going to throw it out there already, uh, anyway. Um, Victor Medivchuk was arrested, and, yeah. you know, Lepetnuk, the director of the... Um, was visiting Ukraine saying that he was arrested. The guy was arrested and he's being tortured by the Ukrainians, bro. Ooh. They appeared in a frame of film with you, Lee. Um, my second comment, the ruble is at 71 U.S. dollars. Wow. You know? Um, my third comment is um, 1,000 troops, Ukrainian Marines and Azov Battalion members surrendered in Maripol. You have Chechens and Russians is going into the basement, clearing out the uh, remaining people there. So the uh, battle of Miracle is basically over. My second comment, my third comment, my, excuse me, my fourth comment, um, you might need to get Tom Lagoon on the show again, which used to have. Um, um, somebody shelled off major stocks, stakes in Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank. Which is not is not a good sign for the euro because the um, euro that that done something to your the European economy the stocks went down in your European economy. My last comment is that the uh, zero haze printed today that the shipping containers the ninety percent of the trucks in, in Shanghai region at the port city is out of service because of the lockdown. So you got shipping containers starting to pile up at the ports. Oh. Means we're gonna have another um, uh, another uh, shipping um, chain problem coming up in the next, you know, uh, weeks or months. Thank wow. you, for calling. Thanks, Sharif. Wow. Great call as usual. A lot good of good points. Yeah. We talked about yeah. uh I hadn't heard he was being tortured, but it's a very frightening development because they're not going to treat him well. No. And as for how long ago. Coming back on the show, Tom made a choice to leave and not appear on the show. And I think I have a slightly better chance of going on a date with my ex-wife than getting Tom back on the show, which is... I don't, I don't understand. What happened? Uh, he got very upset about something. And... Uh, Just now? Was it something I said? No, no, no. This was back on the fault lines. Uh, uh, and he got very upset, and he said he wasn't, and he was insulting. He was in, being insulting to me on Twitter and in comments before he came on the show. Oh. That's a hint. 
<laughs> that it's not going to work so well. Yeah. Right. Right. Don't don't start attacking me. And then when he came on the show, I called him out on it. I said, hey, Tom, I see what you're saying. And let's talk about it. And he didn't like getting found out. So it was upsetting because I like Tom and I think it's a lot of good analysis. And I, I'd be open to having him come back on the show. But I just don't think it will happen. And and so, good suggestion, but, you know. Right. Not too likely. Fat, fat chance. That's all I got to say there. Let's go to Command Central BT, you said? Let's go to BT on the line, 202-521-1320. BT, what is on your mind? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to talk about the pressure that the U.S. is putting India under for the past month. And this has sort of not been talked about very much in the media. But, um, like, last month in March, they sent Newland there to Delhi. And we don't know what she did, but presumably to pressure India to fall in line with the sanctions. Um, then they sent uh, this guy named Dalip Singh, who is American, his parents are Indian, and he's Biden's sanctions architect. Um, oh, boy. He, he, built, <laughs> he built on those threats. Um, later, they sent Liz Truss, who's the British Foreign Secretary, and there was a group of 10 British MPs that were going to visit India to talk about trade, and their visit was suddenly canceled because they they wanted to talk about Russia and Ukraine all of a sudden. Um, and yesterday, Biden talked to Modi on the phone, um, and um, Lloyd Austin and Blinken hosted their Indian counterparts. And Lloyd Austin in particular, like, I heard a, a bit of his sort of press conference afterwards, and it was really belligerent. And now there's talk in the media that they're going to disinvite India from a G7 meeting. It isn't part of the G7, but it was invited to the meeting, which isn't such a big deal. But um, it just shows there's a lot of diplomatic pressure. Well, I, I don't know. Does this have anything to do with Imran Khan being pushed out? Because there's obviously a big, longstanding rivalry between Pakistan and India. And I just find it very strange that there was this photograph of Bill Gates at a dinner with Imran Khan just a couple of weeks ago with about 12 people sitting around a table with 13 chairs. And one of the chairs had a very bizarre, you know, sort of like content aware fill Photoshop thing happening where somebody had been so conspicuously removed that they were forced to say, oh, well, that was the head of the Pakistani ISI. But I don't believe that because if they removed someone and then tell you who it is, why did they remove him? I'm curious. Maybe that was Victoria Nuland. Also, every country around India is having a crisis. So Nepal and um, Sri Lanka are having sort of forex problems. Um, we'll probably have to go to the IMF. And Pakistan is having political issues. Um, so there's like, it seems to be a very tough situation. Maybe it's just any country that's with Russia. Exactly right. They seem to have one diplomatic pose to take 
with anyone, which is sanction them. So what they're right. doing is threatening and sanctioning India. And I think India is a big enough country and already has Russia they're working with where it doesn't need that. See, and we're going to go to break here in a minute, but the U.S., their policy has been when dealing with other countries, even our allies like Germany, we threat, we routinely threaten what who, we tell countries who they can do business with. That's right. that's my point. We tell yeah. countries you can do business with them, but we won't allow you to do business with them. And right. a lot of the countries don't look on that well because they want to do business with who they want to. So if India decides it's in the best interest of India to buy oil and gas from Russia, they don't want to feel they're going to be punished for it by the U.S. And Russia doesn't do that. Russia doesn't punish you. If you want to do business with the U.S., they say, fine, do business with them. And this is the death spiral because once you deal with countries like this, there's no, you have to deal with all countries like that. You can't show favoritism. So I think it's part of the impending disaster for the U.S. These yeah. sanctions, they've sanctioned themselves into a hole. But when yeah. we come back from the break, we're joined by Ted Rawl, and we'll be discussing all the stuff going on in New York, arrests, terrorist acts that aren't terror. I don't know how to put it. It's kind of seemed like terrorism. Right, Jason? Capital. Apparently, it's terrorism if you walk into the Capitol when the police open the door. But if you shoot up the subway with guns and explosives, that's, you know, I don't know what that is. After filling the station with smoke. Right. It's shocking. But Ted Rawl will be with us next. And Ted Rawl also might know a thing or two about what's going on in France. We'll talk to him about that here on The Backstory. Stories on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. We're joined ably by our guest co-host, Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. And our guest this half hour is author, artist, cartoonist, and bon vivant, Ted Rawl. Hey, Ted, how are you doing? I'm good, Lee. How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay. So let me ask you, you, you are French, correct? I am. I'm, uh, I'm not born there, but I have French citizenship as well as American citizenship. Um, the French side is through my mom, and uh, I, I definitely am French. Now, so have you been paying attention to the election going on in France? I, I, I am, and I, I voted in it. 
Really? My guess is there's a socialist party in France. My guess is you went with them. Uh, no, I didn't. I voted for uh, Mr. Mélenchon. Uh, the socialist party is basically non-existent. It's been it's weird considering that it routinely elected very important presidents like François Mitterrand, but uh, it's been decimated. Uh, it's sort of. I would say got a sort of what happened to labor in England with under Tony Blair, where it lost its way and it became sort of a center-left corporatist party, and it's sort of that the French just abandoned it. So, in the most uh, in the first round of this election, uh, they they were down in the low single digits. The Socialist Party was a very important party, a majority party, and uh, now it's basically been reduced to nothing. Now, my understanding is that Macron changed the election system in France in 2017 and that opened up a system where they would have a first round and a second round. He opened it up and it let a lot of smaller parties participate. Am I correct? What, what happened there? Well, there's always been, um, there's always, there's never been uh, exclusion of major, of minor parties in France. I mean, at any given point, it's a parliamentary system, and there's always been the ability for, you know, typically 15, 20, 12, uh, you know, substantial parties on the ballot at any given point. So, uh, but what the runoff system is new, and uh, the runoff system has, as, as we've sort of witnessed, has had an increase, sort of increases the appearance, if not necessarily the fact, of massive polarization. Uh, so you basically, and, and Mr. Uh, Macron's, uh, the President Macron's uh, sort of non-party, neither of the center, um, sorry, neither of the left or the right, as he categorizes himself uh, when he ran, but now He's definitely uh, rules to the right. Uh, you know, his approach gutted sort of the center left and the center right. And the French sort of concluded, well, if you know, if you're going to, if you're a right wing voter, you might as well go all the way and support uh, Marine Le Pen. And if you're on the left, you might as well go all the way and support uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And so that's, you know, the big story that got underreported in this election is the fact that Mélenchon came really close. I mean, if, uh, I mean, basically, it's a third, a third, a third uh, for these three candidates. And just because Mélenchon doesn't go to get to go to the second round doesn't mean that there's not a lot of, of people who uh, voted for basically a communist. Now, ex expand on that a little bit. Who is Mélenchon? Explain to people who he is. Because, and you, you said... He came in third. It was, uh, as I saw the numbers, if they were still, they haven't settled into something different. It was, Macron got about 28%. Le Pen got about 23%, maybe 24 And Mélenchon, as you say, was right behind there, around 20%. Is this correct? And who is Mélenchon? Yeah, I don't want to get into one or two points, uh, you know, but basically, yes, your numbers are, are right. Um, and they have been settling a little bit as the, as the final votes have, have been tabulated. We in the States know something about that. Mélenchon's a, 
uh, sort of a, um, a longstanding figure on the French left. Uh, he used to be a socialist. Um, he would have been in the old Parti Socialiste Francais. He would have been a, uh, a sort of, uh, I, I, he would have been considered a more extreme Marxist-Leninist sort of uh, labor-oriented, class-oriented, definitely not a identity politics-oriented Marxist-leftist. Uh, and when the, you know, the, it became pretty clear that the Socialist Party was uh, going down the toilet, he sort of sat things out. Uh, he's, but he's been a constant, he's kind of got a reputation for being uh, cranky, irascible, um, kind of... Uh, kind of a bitter pill to swallow uh, in terms of personality, and that's held him back. And he's tried to, for this run, he's tried to moderate that he's also kind of coasted on the uh, Yellow Vest movement to a certain extent. I mean, France's politics are really in a state of crisis. And I think the two-round voting system was uh, is, is largely responsible for it. Uh, it is a, you know, I mean, if, as we ex would ex one would expect, uh, Macron is reelected, he's going to he's going to be a president who's reelected without a mandate, and France is a country where that really matters more than it might matter in another country like the United States. Uh, and you know, the other thing that's and the reason I think he will be reelected is because you're not going to have the disgruntled. Uh, people like in the United States who, you know, could have voted either for Bernie Sanders or for Donald Trump, and when one isn't available, they'll go to the other, even if they're ideologically diametrically opposed. The French don't do that. The French are less about sending a message of anger; they're more about ideology. But that said, uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, socialists and communists sit, on, and you know, in France, that's a lot of people. They're going to be sitting on their hands. And they're not going to turn out for uh, for President Macron. I, th I really don't think they will. This is not going to be like a, when a similar thing happened with uh, Marine Le Pen's father when he was running as the head of the National Front, and the French left decided to fall behind, uh, fall in line behind Chirac in the second round. Um, that just that just seemed to make. I don't think you're going to see the left rally to deny. Le Pen, because they're so angry and disgusted and disgruntled uh, at at, at, the, at the sitting president. So they're going to, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of people abstain from voting. Uh, and, you know, so I think it's going to be a low turnout. Le Pen will come ridiculously closer than ever before. And it's going to, you know, I mean, she could even win. I, I don't think she will, but it's it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Now, Jason Goon, do you have any questions for Ted Roll on the French election? Well, if I understood correctly, you said that it was Macron that polarized everybody, and that immediately caused me to think about Alinsky saying to personalize and polarize. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, I mean, yeah, there, that's the thing is, I mean, like Zelensky, um, Macron basically created so, a Saul Alinsky, Saul Alinsky, I'm talking about. Oh, oh, Saul Alinsky. I think we're talking about Zelensky. Personalize and polarize. Yes. Well, yeah, I don't think that that was Macron's <laughs> approach, and I'm sure he never read Saul Alinsky. Um, you know, uh, 
but Macron did personalize the presidency and his campaign. I mean, it, it's really uh, you know kind of amazing when he came to power, he swept the, the French Parliament with his new party. Basically, he's like a party of one. He's I mean the closest thing that you would have in the states would be if you could imagine Donald Trump forming a new Trump party, which is just you know basically never existed before. It is only about his political allies. And then Trump wins. And then the Trump party then controls three quarters of both the House and the Senate. That's kind of what happened when Macron came to power. And, uh, you know, so the, the French gave him extraordinary power and an extraordinary mandate in a system that kind of traditionally has like a weak presidency. And he kind of didn't use it. And, uh, you know, he he did the one thing that you don't do in France, which is that he governed as the president of the wealthy. And you just don't do that in France. Yeah. Now, Ted, let's turn to this stuff in the headlines today about New York. And we'll come to this. It's hard to know what to say about the incident at the subway station this morning. Very little is known about it. As far as I know, they didn't capture anyone during the show, right? Uh, no, doesn't look like it. So that's still a confusing situation. But let's look at the other situation that's less confusing. You had the lieutenant governor of New York arrested. Now, who is this guy and why was he arrested? You know, I don't know much about him. I was following this story kind of with great surprise, and it's only on a day— uh, when you have a um, you know a, a mass shoot a mass shooting incident in a Brooklyn subway station, that a story like this is going to be pushed down to the bottom of the feed. Um, yeah, it's 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 bad. What it is is the significance of this is uh, Kathy Hochul, uh, who in, who was the lieutenant governor uh, and stepped into uh, Andrew Cuomo's shoes after he was forced to resign, um, appointed this guy and. You know, she's New Yorkers don't know her. Downstate New Yorkers really don't know her because she's from upstate New York. And the politics of New York are, to put it simply, divided be between the liberal New York City and its suburbs and all of the rest of the state upstate, which is more conservative, more Republican. And uh, she was from that area. That's kind of unusual. Uh, it's hard to imagine that she ever could have been elected uh, governor um, without coming to power the way she did. And now this makes her look really bad. I mean, people are, it's starting to focus on the gubernatorial camp, uh, race. Um, we had kind of gotten used to the fact that as an incumbent Democrat, she was likely to prevail. But this, it, it casts aspersions on her judgment. And so I think this story is about her. The story is not about him. Uh, no one cares about him. He's a nobody. Uh, he's a cipher. I mean, she was a nobody. She was a cipher. The lieutenant governor of the state of New York is someone, you know, who is anonymous. Nobody ever knows who they are. So, um, and I just want to say parenthetically about the subway station attack. Uh, first of all, it's really technically a subway train attack because it happened right. on a train and then yeah. people, then the doors opened and people came out. The other thing is it's also happened. The location is very strange. I mean, this is the hinterlands for New York City. It's not a tourist place. Right. This is residential. Right. This is 
yeah, this is deep Brooklyn where normal working class people live. Uh, you know, this is a this is not if you're trying to make a political statement, uh, this would really not be the place that most terrorists who are politically oriented would target. There's a there's a bunch of weird things. First of all, I want to just say, Ted, it's strange what you said about the governors. I agree with and I disagree with. I agree that it's not about, uh, you know, Lieutenant Governor Benjamin. But I don't think it's about Kathy Hochul either. There's an interesting nuance here. So Benjamin, the lieutenant governor who's just resigned uh, within the last hour or so, he's black. And he's been charged with uh, directing $50,000 of city money to a charity inappropriately. And I, it's, I'm just looking at the New York Times right now, and there's commentary here from Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, who says this is a simple story of corruption. Damian Williams is also black, and I believe the first black U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. The uh, state attorney general, Letitia James, is also black. And I think this needs to be called out. Why is it only black politicians and Black Lives Matter? And um, there was that politician who was put in jail. I'm forgetting her name right now. She was black. Why didn't they go after Andrew Cuomo? There's a lot of things going on with the charity that his sister runs that uh, evidence I've seen indicates that a lot of things like this are happening as well. People who watch Crowdsource the Truth might remember that during the early days of the pandemic, I went over to the Javits Center before they announced there was going to be a field hospital there. And I noticed carpenters, the carpenters union going in and out of there. And it's interesting because, you know, there's a whole rehabilitation that's just happened to the Javits Center. And I don't know if people know this, but a lot of times when uh, developers are vying for contracts for that kind of city stuff. The way they get the contract is that they do like government subsidized housing. So they'll build an apartment complex for low income people over here and then they get the contract. And the Cuomo family is involved in a charity called Help USA that's deeply involved in all of that. So, you know, when I see in the state of New York, the Clinton Foundation getting involved in millions and millions and even potentially billions of dollars worth of corruption, I wonder why Damian Williams, even though he himself is black, why are we only seeing convictions and prosecutions of black politicians and black people being accused? You know, Black Lives Matter, I do not support. But it's interesting to note that Letitia James went after them for not being properly organized as a 501c3, but they haven't gone after the Clinton Foundation, and they've gone after Trump. He's not black, but this is weird. Uh, well, you know, you, that's, it's a, I mean, I never thought about it this, that way, but it's a good question. I mean, it might be something as simple as, you know, the most power and the most, and the most, uh, and the most money resides with white politicians. So, uh, and white political figures like Cuomo, like the Clintons, and it might really just be that simple. Um, I suspect that's probably the case. I mean, Cuomo's untouchable, and he knows where a lot of bodies are buried, and I think that's why he's there's a lot a, a lot of reluctance to try to uh, add his uh, to add his scalp to the wall. 
I wonder if he has anything to do with Benjamin going down. It's, you know, the, the Cuomo brothers are involved in a scorched earth campaign. And we've heard some rumblings that Andrew might be mounting a political comeback. It's just interesting to see the things, you know, the, the cases of corruption that they pursue and the cases that they don't pursue. Prosecutorial uh, discretion, we call it. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the, same, it's the same thing that makes the cop pull you over for speeding when people are going faster than you right by them. But, you know, who knows? I, I want to turn to the, the Ted referred to it as a mass shooting incident, and it kind of is. But because of so many people, I was confused by this at first when they said it's a mass shooting incident. Then they said there's 16 people at the time in the hospital and that five of them were shooting victims. Most of the injuries that I've seen, at last I looked, they were smoke-related. Yeah. So this seems to me to be a a, a bizarre, I, I, that's why I don't know what to call it. It's not strictly a shooting incident. Something else, weirdly. They're saying that this guy, subway shooter, he had a Glock or something, and that it jammed. But yeah, so he's got a jammed Glock. You know what? If you Google what's the most reliable gun, it's a Glock. And I'm not saying that means it can't jam, but a little bit unusual, I think. It's also the Glock, the nine millimeter Glock is also the standard service revolver of the NYPD, if that right. means anything. Um, so, and there's another part that, I mean, I think, look, there's, let's start the blame game because we're Americans. That's what we do. Um, but I'm going to start it here. Uh, the whole, the fact that they're not able to uh, track this guy yet because the security cameras were out in the station Ridiculous. is Ridiculous. absolutely insane. Um, it's, you know, it's not since the, uh, death of Epstein in a, in a prison ward that apparently also conveniently didn't have working cameras, uh, has something so stupid been around. And they, you know, they said, I, my, uh, my antenna, I went up when I heard, oh, you know, the camera, the 36th street yeah. subway station, uh, probably has 20 or 30 cameras at bare no, minimum. It's Brooklyn though. It's Brooklyn. It, it does. It does. It's a big a station. Lot less. It's a, it, it's I haven't been to that one in Brooklyn. That 36th Street is a major transfer point um, in, in that area. There's uh, three trains that stop there, the D, the N, and the R. It's an express stop. Uh, it's, it's like Atlantic Avenue. It is a big transfer point. So, um, you know, it's, there's an upper-level uh, 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 plaza. I mean, it's, it's got multiple entrances. So you would need, at bare minimum, uh, I would think at least ten cameras just to sort of get just a, the bare outlines of of the of what's going on in that in that station. Some of them are still pretty dilapidated, even the major ones. I can't say. I mean, I haven't been to that one, but I mean, it's this is it. It just speaks to the deteriorating nature of New York, the lack of law enforcement, the total disregard for safety. I mean, I see police officers standing around doing nothing but texting all day. I mean, it's a bad problem. And I don't want to defund the police. I think we need to put more funding into the police. What I want to do is fire police that aren't doing anything and give raises to people who actually want to be involved in law enforcement so that we can have a more effective, more efficient police force. And the fact that someone could even leave that subway station without being seen, identified, photographed, 
forget about the security cameras. Everybody had their cell phone out. How do we not have a picture of this guy? Well, there were smoke bombs and there's the element of surprise and mayhem. And, you know, I mean, that's every New Yorker's reaction is like, wait, where? You know, if you were told that this happened in at Times Square or some or Penn Station, Wall Street, you'd say, OK, all right, I get this. But, uh, you know, it's a very strange location. People were caught by surprise. Uh, you know, when you're gasping for air in a crowded subway car and let's not forget when you open fire in a subway car, bullets ricochet all over the place. It was one of the reasons that uh, the the Glock was originally uh, there were a lot of, there was a lot of opposition, um, including from NYPD, specifically to issuing it as a service revolver in this New York City subway because you're in tight confined spaces with ceramic tile in the stations or metal you're in a metal box and you know the old uh, the old service standard service revolver the old uh, six shooter was you know a lot of older cops really thought it was a safer weapon for that environment so it must have been like total mayhem uh, when this guy started you know opened fire that's why this crime it seems to me might be terrorism although not for a major thing but because obviously the goal was to cause mayhem the the smoke the ele- that element of it it was designed to be may- mayhem well something that's terrorizingly is not necessarily terrorism i mean it's not terrorism unless it's got a political uh, aim so you know like the the columbine shootings terrorized people and created mayhem and were intended to uh, raise Cain, but they, they were not acts of, it was not an act of terrorism. But Ted, we're living in a world where if you go to the PTA meeting and say you don't like critical race theory or uh, transgender education for five-year-olds, that's terrorism. So I think we're <laughs> kind of off the rails with, well, that's not, obviously that's not terrorism. Uh, but- oh, they say it's domestic terrorism. They were saying, yeah, well, no, 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 no violence, no terrorism, no, no political aim, no terrorism. Words are violence, apparently, according to some people. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. When we start getting into these semantics and this kind of squishy language where if you're Joe Biden and you don't want people to be able to get guns, this or that is or isn't terrorism. I mean, we're just we're totally through the looking glass with the Orwellian whatever they want it to be. Now, I was going to ask, what do you think, do you think the cameras or lack thereof, what are going to be the big stories coming out of this in the next few days in New York? Is this story not going away? What are they going to be talking about? Well, the, yeah, this is, this is going to feed into uh, Mayor Adams' push uh, to, uh, to, to, to increase his anti-drug uh, enforcement task force that he's been, that he ran on and that he's pushing hard for, but that a lot of people don't believe in. Um, It's also going to be, uh, there's definitely going to be people looking at the lack of of, uh, funding and proper proper maintenance for the the subways. I mean, the camera thing is absolutely out of control. Um, You know, it's it's inexcusable. It's ridiculous. Um, You know, people have, all over the country, millions of people have cameras at their doorbells to see if anybody's stealing their Amazon packages. Surely the nation's largest transit system 
ought to have working cameras in it uh, for some, and not to mention, uh, I would really love for someone to bring up my idea of bringing back the old transit police department that Rudy Giuliani got rid of, uh, where you had expert cops who were trained to chase suspects into the tunnels and so on, who knew the subway system in and out and who were on every single subway train 24 seven, uh, you, you'd find a cop. That was Ted Rawl and Great Parents by Ted Rawl. Thanks so much to Jason Goodman for being our co-host today. Mark Sabota, we'll be back tomorrow on Backstory.